you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of 1 Peter. Continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter, we'll be in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 this morning. Picking up where we left off last week at the end of verse 6. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. It should be on the screens behind me if you aren't able to find it in time. <clears throat> it says this, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Edgar Wisenant was a rocket engineer at NASA who decided to, to pivot into being a Bible teacher, a Bible scholar. If you've ever heard his name before, it's probably from his book, which was printed and distributed millions of times in 1988. Its title... 88 Reasons the Rapture Could Be in 1988. He studied the Bible, he did some math, and he was absolutely sure, he was positive that the rapture would occur on Rosh Hashanah 1988, between September 11th and 13th. So he published this book, he warned everyone, this is absolutely what's going to happen. I've done the math, I've read the Bible, this is for sure. And then September 14th rolled around. So what he did was he went back to the drawing board and he gave a new prediction after reevaluating some things and said, okay, now it's going to be on October 3rd, 1988. And then October 4th came. So then he went back to the charts again and uh, he uh, published another book a year later, 1989. And he said, actually, you know what? I wasn't wrong. The calendars are wrong. There, there's a missing year. There's an extra year. Well, what we claim to be 1989 is actually 1988. So it's going to be 1989, Rosh Hashanah, absolutely positive. You can mark it down. This is what's going to happen. And then, what do you know, 1990 showed up. So now he really had to take his time. He had to evaluate what's going on. Why am I off in my predictions? And he came to another conclusion and then he wrote, 23 reasons why a pre-tribulation rapture looks like it will occur on Rosh Hashanah, 1993. He gave himself a couple years to prepare for that one, to be ready. But this time, he only had 23 reasons. He was a little less sure. He even hedged his bet a little bit with the title. It looks like it might occur in 1993. But then, you know, it didn't happen. Rosh Hashanah came and went, 1993. Undeterred, though, he made one more prediction. He said, I'm going to try one more time to get this right. And his final book, which is titled, And Now the Earth's Destruction by Fire, Nuclear Bomb Fire, in World War III, World War IV, and World War V at Armageddon. Okay, that's the title of the book. He predicted that this was going to happen in 1994. And at that point, you've got to wonder, why did he stop? He's been wrong four or five times by now. If you just publish a new book every year, eventually you're going to nail it, right? 
even like posthumously, just like write them all for the next several thousand years. And at some point, you're going to be right because his credibility was already completely gone at this point. Just keep going. I have a Facebook friend who shall remain nameless, uh, who I counted the other day. And in one week's time, this person posted 31 warnings about the rapture. She said, absolutely. This is going to happen. It's going to happen soon. Several times a day, this person is posting, the world is about to end. Are you ready? This person is posting, don't be left behind. This person's posting, read Revelation to see what's about to happen. 31 times in one week. And that wasn't like an abnormal week. The reason I knew to count is because that is every week, all the time. When Wisnett made his first prediction in 1988, there were people who quit their jobs. There were people who took out massive loans. They spent all their money because they said, well, the world's about to end, right? What do I need the money for? I can take out a loan. If you're willing to hand it to me today that I don't have to pay back tomorrow, what difference does it make? Like the characters in a doomsday cult in the TV show Parks and Rec who keep writing checks the nights before they predicted the apocalypse to happen because they know that the world's going to end, right? You're never going to have to cash these. This Facebook friend, her reaction to the end of the world in her eyes is to type away like Chicken Little, frantically warning everyone of the impending doom. But if the world is going to end tomorrow, is that really how we're supposed to live today? I don't think so. I think Peter actually gives us really clear instructions for that scenario in today's text. So today, we'll be able to see in our verses three ways to live in light of the end. Three ways to live today if the world ends tomorrow. The first way that we live in light of the end is by controlling ourselves. Because the end of all things is at hand, we should control ourselves. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter bases all of the instructions he gives in today's verses on the fact that the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So, so these and the rest of his instructions are so different from what we might expect him to say after beginning by telling them that the world's coming to an end, right? And even more so, whenever we think about, Peter said this 2,000 years ago. So what does that even mean, the end of all things is at hand? 2,000 years, in my mind, doesn't usually qualify as at hand. It, it makes Peter sound like the, the parent who tells the kid in the back seat, yes, we'll, uh, we'll be there soon. We're almost there. Are we there yet? Basically, yes. When you really just left the driveway. So what does Peter mean here that the end of all things is at hand? Well, I think in the grand scheme of things, the end of all things is at hand. I mean, the end is what comes next. God created the world and it was perfect. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. They plunged the world into chaos, sin, and death. Then Jesus came. He atoned for their sins and the sins of the whole world to, to redeem the entire cosmos, to redeem a people to himself through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection and ascension. So it was broken. It's been fixed, or at least promised to be fixed, 
And we're just waiting for that final scenario. The stage is set. The the dominoes are in place. And the first one has even been struck. We're just waiting for them all to fall at this point. We just have to wait for what we already know is coming. To see what is already true now. So yes, I think the end of all things is at hand. And Christians in every generation have thought that they were the last ones. The early church, they knew Jesus said that he would return soon and that things were bad and getting worse. So they thought, well, surely he'll be back in our lifetime, right? And every generation after them has said the exact same thing. We hear the promises. We read he says that he's coming soon. We look at our world and we say, surely this is it. And it's been 2,000 years of that same thing. I remember when I was a kid in the 90s that the rapture was all it felt like anyone ever talked about. We read books about it. We watched movies about it. We asked questions after reading the newspaper about it. Just knowing Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Some of you guys have probably had similar thoughts along these lines. I just can't believe how bad it's gotten in our country. I just can't believe the state of our society. Even now, there's fighting in Israel, and you guys don't probably have a a firm grasp of what that necessarily means, but you hear fighting in Israel, and your first thought is, is this it? Is this the end? Yes. Absolutely. We are at the end of all things. And we have been at the end of all things for 2,000 years. My point here isn't to tell you that you're wrong to think that the world is coming to an end. It's to tell you that you're right. The end of all things is at hand. But they've been at hand for 2,000 years. So you also shouldn't be shocked if we're all still here tomorrow. Reminds me of uh, the movie Avengers Infinity War, the, the 18th movie in a long series of movies. At the end of this three-hour movie, there's a character who says, we're in the end game now. And then there's another like three movies before the one that's called Endgame, which is another three and a half hour movie that actually has the end of it. So like, yeah, we're, we're in the end game, but you might have another several movies to go before you actually get to the end here. That's when we finally win here. But because we're in the end game, because the end of all things is at hand, and it is, Peter has instructions for how we should live now, today. And the first thing he says to do is not to write a bunch of checks because they're not going to ever be cashed. He says that we should be self-controlled. He says we don't get to fly off the handle. We don't get to use living in the end times as an excuse to stop doing, to stop being exactly who we're supposed to be in Christ. And when you start noticing it in Scripture, we're told to be self-controlled a lot. It's one of the more common uh, commands that are given to us. It's a qualification for a pastor. It's something God tells us to be over and over. And, And the older I get, the more I recognize why I think that's the case. It's because we're bad at this. By we, I mean humans. But, but Christians, I think, are rarely any better here. Everywhere you look, every time I log into Facebook, Twitter, anything, all I see is people who have just lost control of themselves. But because the end is near, control yourselves. We're supposed to also be sober-minded. 
He says this, I think, in direct contrast to 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 5, where he was talking about drunkenness over and over, where he said that believers around us are marked by drunkenness, they're marked by their sinful passions, but we are supposed to leave those things in our former lives. So they may be drunkards with no self-control. They may be people out of their minds because their passions rule over them. But we are supposed to be sober-minded, clear-headed, clear-thinking, reasonable, logical. We take seriously what should be taken seriously, and we take unseriously what should be taken unseriously. So don't assume here that every person who isn't a junkie, who isn't an alcoholic, that everyone who isn't under the influence of drugs is therefore sober-minded. Because I have met plenty of teetotalers who cannot string two thoughts together. And this isn't even talking about intelligence either. It's just that can you focus on something important and think about it in a reasonable way? Can you hear someone explain something and not immediately fly off the handle without any kind of outside influence? I think even the person who is addicted to political radio, the person who cannot remove their eyes from their cable news channel of choice, I think that person's probably not sober-minded. I think the person who cannot put their phone down for five minutes to speak to another human being across the dinner table, they don't seem very sober-minded to me. They seem like they're under the influence of something, that they're controlled by something. I think this is a major blind spot for us sometimes. I think we have to do better at this because we all know of instances where we've interacted with someone else, maybe even another Christian, and either we or they said something that was just insane, something absolutely crazy, something that no one in their right minds would ever believe. So somehow you didn't have the self-control to not say it, yes, but you also weren't sober-minded enough to not think it. So in Peter's thinking, the problem here is that you have forgotten that the end of all things is at hand. It's not just that you need to get a tighter grip on your horses. It's that you are forgetting that we're living in the end. You're forgetting that the end is on its way. It's It's at hand. And for the sake of your prayers, Peter says, you need to come back to reality. You need to come back to your right mind. You need to control yourself. You need to clear your head because your prayers are affected by this. See, something about your prayer life is hindered by you not being self-controlled or sober-minded. I think we saw a similar principle here back in chapter 3 where husbands were to treat their wives a certain way lest their prayers be hindered. So the language here isn't quite the same. It was hindered there in chapter 3. It's just affected for the sake of here in chapter 4. But I think it's still drawing a connection between your prayers and your conduct. And what I want to point out, though, is that this connection may not be what we immediately assume. We hear this and we probably immediately think, I have to act this way so that when I pray for whatever I pray for, God will hear that prayer. God will grant that prayer. And maybe that's right. I don't think that that's a wrong thing to think from what Peter's saying, that that may be what he's talking about. But I think you might also be looking at the chicken and not the egg. Maybe your conduct isn't the means through which you get your prayers granted. 
Maybe your self-control and your sober-minded is what mindedness is what causes you to pray the kind of prayer that is more likely to be granted. That if you are someone who is self-controlled and sober-minded, you will pray differently than someone who is not. And that kind of prayer is actually what God's probably looking for. The prayers of someone who is self-controlled and sober-minded, those are probably going to be better prayers. More likely to be in line with God's will prayers. More likely to be in line with scripture prayers. Than the one who thinks, I want a Maserati so I'll control myself and have a sober mind so that I can get there. I don't think that's the connection that Peter's making here. If the end is at hand, your prayers are going to matter. So because the end is at hand, we have to control ourselves. That's one way to live in light of the end. But another way to live in light of the end is to love one another. Because the end is at hand, we should love one another. Look at verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter's saying this should be done above all. So before you stock up on ammo, before you install the bunker in your backyard, the first thing you need to do is to love one another. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the, the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the beginning point of every interaction that we have with another human being is that you should have love for them. You should have love for them after the pattern of Christ's love for you and your love for yourself. Okay, that is true with everyone, right? That's how we are to treat every person on the planet. But remember that Peter is writing this letter specifically to the elect exiles, to the Christians in the dispersion, the church members in this area. So to love one another here is to love your fellow church member here. Almost any time we see one another in the Bible, and it's something that we see a lot, it's a command that's directed at Christians toward other Christians. It's directed at church members toward other church members. So we should love one another here above all. And Peter actually assumes that that's what's already happening, right? He says, keep loving one another earnestly. So we don't have to hear this as a rebuke, as if we just don't love each other and we have to start doing that from scratch. But we can all agree, certainly, that we can always improve in this. It's an encouragement to keep doing what you're doing if you're already loving one another, yes. But if you're not doing this yet, or you're not doing this perfectly yet, and surely we're not, then start. If you're doing it, then keep going. If you're not doing it, then start doing it. Do it better than you have before. I have to wonder, what would our fellowship look like if we actually did this? If we loved one another earnestly, truly, passionately, simply, without any ulterior motives or reasons. If we loved them just because they're there because they're here with us. If we were genuinely wanting what's best for them, caring for them, encouraging them, 
even challenging them, convicting them, saying, hey, I I think you're in sin here, and because I love you, I'm going to talk to you about that. If we were sharing the gospel with them, even if they've heard it before as a reminder, because that's what we need all the time is to be reminded of the gospel in our lives. If we were discipling one another out of love for one another, if we were loving from the bottom of our hearts, our affection for the other people in this room would be such that we love them first and that all we do toward them is marked by that love. All we do toward them overflows with that love. And love that looks like that covers a multitude of sins. Peter here gives that as the the reason why we should be loving one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. He's saying, look, if you guys are going to be a Christian community together, with an eye toward the future, toward the end of all things, then we are going to need some help to get there. We won't be able to stay together as we hurdle toward that end without this help, without this love, because love covers a multitude of sins. And we are people who need a multitude of sins covered, right? We're sinners covenanted together to be church members together. We are sinners in relationships with other sinners. Okay, a multitude of sins is going to absolutely mark all of our interactions with each other. Anytime I hear people complaining about how church people in the past have hurt them, I hear that. I try to be sympathetic toward that. I try to have compassion toward that. But my first or second thought usually is, yeah, I am not surprised at all. I believe everything that you said those church people did to you because I know church people. I am church people. I know what this looks like. We're not perfect. Not anywhere near what we should be. We need love which covers a multitude of sins because we are going to commit a multitude of sins against each other. If you're being honest, you have done this to someone else as often as they've done it to you. So our solution here is love. A loving Christian will continue to bear with other Christians out of love for them because love covers a multitude of sins that they've been committed against. We just keep going. We just keep acting like it didn't happen because we love them too much to let our relationship be ended by their screw-up. We love them too much to allow that one sin to not be covered by our love for them. We love them too much to stop. That's what he's been saying over and over throughout this book, that we should love each other with a brotherly love that never goes away. Matt Smethers wrote this in a a blog on what it means for Christians to love all things in 1 Corinthians 13, and he said this. He said, a mature believer is someone who excels in encouragement in giving the benefit of the doubt, in being hard to offend and easy to please. The posture of Christian love is not skeptical, shoulders back, arms crossed, watching for failure. Instead, it leans in, arms open and ready to cheer, eager to see a fellow believer succeed. I think that's what a mature Christian looks like. White hair usually helps with that, But it doesn't determine this, does it? 
I think if I'm looking for a mature Christian, I'm looking for someone who excels in encouragement, who every time I meet them is giving me the benefit of the doubt, and someone who never has a problem because they're so hard to offend, and they're always pleased with whatever you've got because they're so easy to please. I think that sounds like maturity. I think that kind of love is the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. I'm looking for people like this who love earnestly. These are the kinds of things that I expect to see. Are you right now excelling in encouragement or do you rarely have anything kind to say about someone? Do you rarely show up and just say, man, I love them. I just, I think they're great. I can't get enough of what they're doing. Uh, Every time I meet them, they have a smile on my face. They're always helpful. I feel better having left their presence. When was the last time you said that about anyone? Or is it more likely that you're showing up and going, man, if that guy would just stop. If he would just talk a little bit less. If he would just say something different every once in a while. If he would do his job just a little bit better. Are you always giving the benefit of the doubt? Or is your first assumption, hey, they're evil. They're, they're bad. They're doing this because they're a bad person. Or is it, man, they're just a person who's trying their best and they mess up sometimes. Are you hard to offend or do you take the slightest offense and then you turn it up to 11 because that's going to give you some victim points? Are you easy to please or is there just always something they could have done better? Yeah, all right, that was 98% good, but gosh, that 2% really just gets under my skin. Is that the kind of love that you have for your fellow church members? Peter says this here, and he says a similar point uh, in Scripture, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. If you are someone who finds yourself always at the center of drama, if you're someone who's just always talking about problems, then according to Proverbs, that's saying that your life is marked more by hatred than by love. That you must actually hate who and what you're talking about rather than love it. Or else you'd be covering up their offenses. You wouldn't be stirring up strife. You wouldn't be talking about all of the negatives that you see. You'd be covering it up. If you claim to love your fellow believer then I am asking you, Scripture is asking you, cover their sins. Don't focus on them. Love them enough to overlook the offense, even when the offense is real, even when they did hurt you and you have a right to be upset, even when it's costly, even when it hurts. Peter's saying, we are headed toward the end of the world together to spend eternity, guess what, together. So let's love each other along the way. It's going to make our journey there so much easier, so much more enjoyable. And we can, in a really tangible way, love each other by showing hospitality to one another. I think that's why he follows up verse 9 or verse 8 with verse 9. He says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think in order for you to have someone else in your home, you have to love them, right? You're not inviting strangers in who you don't like very often, I'm going to guess. 
you've got to have some kind of love for them, some kind of reason to have them there. And it's your home, so you're kind of stuck with them as long as they're there. You're the only one who can't leave in that moment. So if you're going to show hospitality, that requires love. And I wonder, when was the last time you had a fellow church member in your home? When was the last time you befriended someone who is new to our church? Not just said, hi, glad you're here. I don't think I've seen you before. When was the last time you got to know them? You took them out to lunch. You took them out to coffee. You said, hey, we're having dinner on Thursday night, you know, like we do every night. And you can join us for that one specifically. When was the last time you had that kind of hospitality for someone else? I've said this several times lately in different groups and different settings that I think we as a church do a really good job of smiling at people on Sunday and saying, man, I'm glad you're here. And we do a really bad job with anything after that. We almost swarm people who are new sometimes and say, wow, we're so glad you're here. And then we leave. And then the next week, remember, they're not new anymore. It's like, well, I've seen them. I guess I'm still glad they're here, but... Not as glad as I would be if this was the first time I ever saw them. Sometimes it feels like we're checking the box of being a welcoming church by smiling and waving, by just shaking a hand, when we should be welcoming people into our Christian community that knows one another and loves one another. And you may or may not know this about me, but I am very introverted. On top of that, I I tend to be a little antisocial and a little anxious around people I don't know very well. So it goes against every single one of my natural instincts to spend my free time with another person. Really just like period. Particularly someone who I don't know very well. Someone who's new. It is not my normal desire to want to have someone over for dinner. It is not my normal desire to just meet up and talk. But God didn't call me to be comfortable. He called me to love you. And I don't think I can actually love you without also showing hospitality toward you. You need the gospel more than I need to be comfortable. There's a mantra behind this kind of idea. It's also the title of a book on the subject. It's the gospel comes with a house key. It's the idea that our homes are not our own. Rather, they are God's tools to be used for the furtherance of his kingdom as we welcome those who look, think, Believe, act differently from us into our everyday, sometimes messy lives, helping them to see what true Christian faith really looks like. Okay, I think that is Christian hospitality. And that's what we've been called to, introverts and all. And what's more, it says, do it without complaining in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So I'm not even allowed to do it and then complain about having done it. I'm not allowed to have you over for for dinner and just think, man, it would be great if they left early. We can't bring people into our lives and show them hospitality in the same way that we eat our vegetables with our nose plugged, with them deep fried, devoid of any substance, covered in something that tastes a little bit better, cheese on broccoli. We have to do this, and I think we have to like it. We have to enjoy it. And the craziest thing that I have found, maybe in my entire Christian life, is that that's actually true. Though, no, I don't naturally want to meet up for coffee. Every time I do it, I love it. I enjoy it, getting to know people in our church. I don't even drink coffee. I'm just there because you're there. 
I don't naturally ask people over for dinner. That's not my idea of a great Tuesday night if you were just asking me in a vacuum. But every single time it happens, every single time you leave our home, I go, man, that was good. That was nice. I'm glad they were here. I'm glad I know them better. I find that that's the case. And I think that's how obedience works sometimes. We tend to think that we're not equipped to do it. We think that we won't enjoy it until we try it. And then we find, wait a second, God knows what he's doing. When he commands me to do something, he also equips me to be able to enjoy that which he has commanded because he's commanded that which is good. So because the end is at hand, we should love one another earnestly, covering their sins and showing hospitality toward them without grumbling. Because that is going to make our ride together toward this common end so much more enjoyable. And the final way that we should live in light of the end is that we should serve God's church. Because the end is at hand, we should serve God's church. Verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I say that these verses are talking about a church context because not only is that who the letter is written to in general, but here again we get Peter's one another language. He's really emphasizing as he gets closer to the end of this letter that who you are who we are together as a church, that really matters for us. He's saying that you've been given gifts as a church member. You've been given opportunities, affinities, aptitudes. But you've been given these things merely as a steward of these things. However God has gifted you, whatever that looks like, and he has gifted you, he's given you these gifts for a purpose, that they would be used in the church and for the service of one another. And let me tell you, that idea that your gifts are not about you, but are about what you might do for someone else, that's the opposite of how we so often hear about gifts, right? Even in the church sometimes. We tend to swing between one of two extremes whenever it comes to gifts in the church. Either you are someone who just doesn't see yourself in this text. You don't see yourself as gifted to serve at all, as maybe even gifted at all. So you fall into being a consumer. You receive the gifts, the service of others, but you're really just going to sit there. Maybe that's out of just overt selfishness. Maybe you just say, no, 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 I'll I'll just take what you give me. Or maybe it's kind of a misplaced insecurity. You don't see yourself as gifted for service, so you're just going to wait until one day God shows up and knights you and says, hey, go help in the nursery. You're gifted for service. You are. You're here. You have the Spirit. So you do have these gifts. That's a pendulum that we sometimes miss as it swings. But the other side of that swing is uh, someone who thinks that they're so gifted that everyone else is just there to watch them work. The other side, rather than no gifts, no service, is all gifts, my service. You're so gifted that you have to do everything. You are somehow so gifted by God that no one else can do anything. That everyone else's job is just to step aside so that you can exercise your gifts. 
And that can be a prideful, arrogant thing where it's my job, maybe it's everyone's job, to see your gifts, to stand aside in awe and go, wow, they're so gifted. I'm going to let them exercise their gifts as we all clap as they do that. Or, and let me tell you, this is how it usually plays out here. I don't think we see that one very much, but here's how it usually works in our church. I'm going to do this because no one else can. I'm going to do this because no one else is willing to. I haven't asked anyone else if they can. I haven't asked if anyone else is willing to. But I'm going to do it because that's how I serve the church. That's how I serve the church. It's not how anyone else serves the church. So I'm going to do this. And I'm also going to do that. And I'm going to do that too. And me, yeah, I'll do that one as well. And we look up and we've got like eight people who do everything. And I think that that is also disobeying this text. I think we have a lot of both pendulum swings. And I think we need a lot of 1 Peter 4.10. We have a lot of people who don't serve at all, who won't serve at all. We've had a nursery slide on the uh, morning announcements for, I think, a month. I don't know that nine has had a single person talk to her. And that's not just like in a vacuum that we just showed up one day and decided we needed more nursery workers. That's after Nina begging for like months for us to have someone else to go in the nursery. And I don't think we've filled it yet. Maybe that's because you think your time of service is over. Maybe it's because you think your time of service hasn't started yet. You're too new. You're too uh, young, immature, any of those things. But I think right now we have a lot of people who are just showing up. But then we also have a lot of people on the complete other side of that spectrum. A lot of people who are holding 10 different ministries together by their bare hands, by their sheer force of will, like a cracked pot, and you are filling in every single gap all the time. You do every job by yourself. You have zero plan for what happens if you were to get hit by a bus. You get hit by a bus, all 10 of those things just fall apart because you are the one who does it, and you have been the one who has been doing it for a long time, some of you. I think we've got both of these errors. And both of these errors are wrong. Because your gifts, whatever they are, are not about you. You do have gifts. And you should exercise them for the service of one another. But part of you serving one another is allowing someone else to also use their gifts in service of the greater group as well. Your gifts, your service, they're stewardship issues. I had a church member in my office not that long ago talking about something that they thought needed to be done. Ways to get specific people involved that in their view we were wasting. And they, they said eventually at the end of the meeting, they said, Nathan, I think this is a stewardship issue. And they were right. Every one of you in this room is a gift to the church in who you are and in what you've been enabled to do. So if we don't identify your gifts, if we don't give you places to use those gifts, then we are not being good stewards of you, the gift that God has given us. And guess what? Also, you are not being a good steward of the gifts that God has given you. Your gifts are a stewardship. You've been given them to keep for a time, and you are going to have to answer for how you kept them when you give them back. So don't waste them. And Peter even says, they don't all have to look the same. 
They're the same stewardship, but they don't all have to look the same. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These gifts, they're a varied grace. So some of you, he's gifted administratively. Some of you, he's gifted musically, with time or with an attitude of service, with the ability to teach, the ability to to be taught, to disciple, to evangelize, to pray. Not all of these gifts look the same. He's wired you differently. He's equipped you differently. So yeah, I think our services should look different. Paul said roughly the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. Our gifts, they differ in how they look, but it's all grace. You don't deserve any of the gifts that you've been given. So be thankful for whatever it is that you got and use it to serve. But however you serve, you have to know that this is a stewardship and that your service is for the service of each other. And then you're going to be able to step out and use it with the right attitude for the right goal. For the one who speaks or teaches, maybe even just the one who raises their hand in class, the one who meets with another member for coffee, anytime you open your mouth, do so as if you were speaking God's words to them in love. Give them scripture, truth, and love. For the one who just shows up and moves chairs around. For the one who refills the mints. The the one who makes copies. Do that in the knowledge that you serve under God's strength, not your own. It's not about you. It's about glorifying God. Because that is the point of our service. That is the end to which the world is heading. The end is at hand. So keep that end, the glory of God revealed in all things, as the focus of your service in the church. The glory, the dominion, they're his forever and ever. So give that glory to him now through your service. Live as if he's glorious now as you wait for that glory to be revealed at the end. The end is coming. It's at hand. It's coming quickly. But if you want to live in light of the end now, then you should control yourself. Don't use the end as an excuse for the means, as a a get-out-of-life-free card. Use it as one more reason to be self-controlled. The end is coming. So above all, love one another earnestly. Don't just run out the clock with the people in this room, but love them as long as you have with them. The end is coming, so serve God's church. So pour yourself out in this place with these people, loving and serving, so that God may be glorified among us as he should be forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the gifts that you've given us, the gifts of each other, the gifts of just the people in this room by their presence, but also the specific ways in which you've gifted them, which you've equipped them, which you've loved them, giving them a stewardship of service. Help for us to love one another earnestly. Above all, 
Help for us to exercise hospitality toward one, toward one another. No grumbling, no complaining, just love. And more ways to show that, more places to show that, more times to show that. Help for us to be a people who are controlled, who have clear heads, who don't lose our minds as we approach the end, but see that approaching end as a, a reason to sober up, as a reason to love one another well, better, as a reason to serve more. Help for us to look forward to that end, not in fear, not in a way that causes us to, to count the days and to, to write checks that we don't have to cash. Rather, let us approach that end in love, with one another, in the church, for your glory. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.